This is The Shift Podcast. The Shift Daily Podcast, every day after we finish the show, gets published to the interwebs so you can share it with your friends and pass it on. On the podcast, Brad Sorensen, he shares with us Providence. It's his company. And what they do at Providence Therapeutics is develop vaccines in Canada. It's an amazing story about why it matters to them. We have Throwback Thursday on the podcast, Toys That Made Us from way back in the day. And on Are You Okay? Classroom Farts That Make Kids Giggle. Don't want to miss it. And Push-Ups for Breaking COVID Laws. All of this on the Shift Daily Podcast. Now, before we continue, we want to share an incredible piece of our lives and your lives and acknowledge that. It's a story of a man named John Copsey. John Copsey was the national news anchor here on The Shift. And we lost John Copsey this weekend. John Copsey passed away. And on Monday, we found out the news. We waited for some family stuff to be taken care of. Tuesday would have been John Copsey's 54th birthday. And here we are sharing with you if you're in winnipeg you know the story of john copsey and his amazing contribution to radio if you're in vancouver at cknw you heard his voice for a very long time and here on the shift he held down the news for years it was a really sad day for us here on the shift on monday it was on monday that we found out the news that um, our brother, network news anchor, John Copsey, had passed away. Tuesday was John Copsey's 54th birthday. And here we are today, um, able to celebrate him and share um, uh, some, I think, things, just a couple quick things that most people didn't know. And I, I want to salute... Uh, this group. I mean, we did a thing on, you know, this companionship and, and stuff on Monday, and that was how we dealt with it on Monday. I'll, I'll call that one, let you see behind the wizard's curtain a little bit. That's how we dealt with it on Monday. And I want to acknowledge um, this group, Catherine and, and the group, and, and frankly, the everyone in this company. You have to understand that when the news came to us on Monday, we were offered to not do the show. And I think that matters to share that part. We got the phone call and said, look, you guys want to tap out, you tap out. We'll just run clips. We'll do whatever. Um, I said, well, what a, talk to Matt. What is Matt? I'll do what Matt does. Matt was like, you know what? Let's just lean into each other. I'm like, yep, perfect. We came up with a plan. We did it. But we were given, we talk about mental health, and I want it to be clear that uh, doing two shows without John and waiting for the family to do their stuff um was the least we could do, and we were given the opportunity to uh, take a break. So I just want that because we talk an awful lot about mental health, and I don't want it to be heard that wow, these guys had to go on the radio when their you know when their buddy died. That's not the case. Um, and I'm glad we did. I'm glad that we did that. Looking back at the last couple of days, boy oh boy, and looking at your text messages, yeah. Um. Me and my friends who visit, uh, who listen all night, will miss that voice, like our very own brother Nira. Thank you for the text. Love John. Um, he'll be dearly missed. Oh, what a voice! 
And it's true. Oh, what a voice. Now, Ryan, uh, you had said you, the first time you heard John in normal conversation, not on the radio, it surprised you. Yeah, it was insane because I worked as a news anchor before this. And we all have if you're a news anchor, you have an anchor voice. You know, you talk differently. But I just remember in the background, I heard John talking to Matt and I had to stop myself and go, wait a minute. He sounds like he does on air. That's his voice. That is a very very rare gift that John had. And it's one of the reasons why so many people are remembering that voice because it was truly a special one on radio. And he's text. I trusted John. May his memory be a blessing to all who knew him. Um, on CKNW this morning, uh, they did a tribute to John Copsey. Finally, listener, a personal note. This is Global News. I'm John Copsey. U.S. President Joe Biden has moved quickly to change some controversial Trump administration policies. That's the voice of John Copsey. You heard him every night here on CKNW and across the Chorus Radio Network in places like Calgary, Edmonton, Winnipeg, and Toronto, delivering the news. We lost John suddenly this past weekend, and his death has left a big hole in our hearts in our little corner of the news world. John came to the West Coast after a career at CJOB, the Prairie News powerhouse. He was a no-fuss, no-muss kind of journalist. He just sat down and got to work, usually wearing a cardigan sweater Mr. Rogers would be proud of. It sounds a bit old-fashioned, but John Copsey was a nice man. There's a wonderful picture of John sitting at his desk, surrounded by computer screens and a microphone, smiling. He was where he was supposed to be. And to his daughter in Calgary, his family in Winnipeg, his girlfriend here... On behalf of myself, Gord McDonald, Emily Lazerton, Janet Brown, Aaron Ubels, Shusti Gangdev, and Robin Crawford, and the rest of the crew at Global News and at CKNW, thank you. Thank you for sharing him. John Copsey was one of the good guys, and we got to work with him. And for that, we are all better. From the Global News Desk, I'm John Copsey. We worked in four separate locations. I'm in Airdrie, Alberta, Ryan's in Calgary, Maddie's downtown Vancouver, and John was at the global office in Surrey. And we, um, there was one guy who spoke to him the most. They, he, they both love music. And Matt, you, you have a story about John's own music. Yeah. I mean, you know, I worked with John for the better part of, of three years and, you know, we, you know, bonded as much as you could in, in these professions where you don't have that much time to really work, you know, you know, cause you're at work, right? You can't, you know, don't have that much time to socialize. But um, there was there's one point a couple of years ago where um, he, he was interested in in my music and I had heard that he was a musician as well. So I'm like, hey, man, like send me some stuff if you've got it. I'm, I'm curious. And he sent me this really cool uh, song he called Tunguska that he'd recorded in 1989. And he described it in, in this email as a space rock instrumental. Uh, recorded to be enjoyed at any speed. Um, so this is the uh, 45 RPM version of Tunguska. So, I mean, if you wanted to describe you know, his personality. And I see in a lot of these tributes, the word quirky come up quite a lot. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, he had a very quirky sort of side to him in, in movies and films. And um, uh, Jonah, a good friend of mine who who uh, worked a bit on the shift here, um, he was in many audio and vinyl related chat rooms with John. 
and often chatted about music and they had a common appreciation for things like Mike Oldfield, Pink Floyd, and really like quirky, obscure Canadian stuff like Nash the Slash and uh, FM. Uh, he had a, his favorite song, actually, which we will play shortly, uh, was by FM. Hey, guys, I'm shocked and saddened to hear about John today. You have my deepest sympathy, says Jasper. I miss hearing him on the radio every day. He had that voice that brought a, a peace and distinctive uh, flavor to it. There was a comfort to it. There was a, a leadership piece to it. It was reliable. Uh, it, it was it was comforting. And I didn't ever meet John face-to-face, but the notion that he's not around uh, breaks my heart. Um he did give us a gift, though. He gave us the gift of the companionship conversation on Monday. And, uh, you know, the, the three of us sitting here uh, remembering John, uh, this is something that we're never going to forget, right? Like, this is the gift that he's given us. This is how remarkable. So from CJOB in Winnipeg to his music uh, to his work at CKNW in Vancouver, um, we will continue with a cup of Copsy. We will um, always have more on that next hour which was one of our favorite things that he always did. And um, thank you, John Copsey. Rest in peace, brother. Rest well. We will keep the music alive here on The Shift. I'm Shane Hewitt. This is FM and John's favorite, Phasers on Stun. This is the Shift Podcast. We do receive all kinds of great text messages. For example, um, hey, Matt, texter says, can you please just introduce the moon dial normally? It's silly how you've been doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's, um, let's, let's unpack this. Let's explore this phrase. Can you please just introduce the moon dial normally? Yeah. First off, I haven't done a lot of that. research about what a moon dial is. I don't think it's an actual thing. Uh, I think it may have been something I made up one night. Hmm. Uh, and then we just stuck with it. Um, the whole moon dial thing uh, is silly. Uh, yes, it is silly. It is, a, it is a thing. It is similar to a sundial. Um, it is only accurate on the night of the full moon, though. So to, to give you the information that you're looking for... Um, Yes, it is made up mostly because Matt's inside. Yeah, um, but, you know, because you asked, I will do it as normally as one does. Um, okay. So, Well, before we get that, I would like to, uh, I would like to uh, get this other text that says the whole moon dial thing is silly now which is fine if you think the whole moon dial thing is silly it is really great when you put don't put the w on the hole yeah uh and, and maybe just a, we don't mean to pick on typos or auto no, could be a typo they arrive with no w so it is a whole moon dial a whole moon m-o-o-n-d-i-l-e thing and so that we know that the uh moon dials for holes also made up so don't go mooning out there, folks. Right. Okay, so Matt 
Would you mind checking in on our moon dial, please? Yeah, here we go. Is that the intro to YYZ? It is. You win. You win. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I Here's win the thing that I know about Matt MacArthur is that if you say, hey, Matt, don't do that, one of my first things is going to be, uh-oh, here goes Matt. He's gonna Matt's it. parents must have been incredibly patient when he was a young boy. <laughs> All right. It is time for Are You Okay? Are you okay with online classes? Um, I guess you would have to be if it was your only option, which is, mm. you know, that's, I think maybe people would probably prefer to learn in a classroom, but mm-hmm. yeah, it, there's a lot, yeah. More, there's a lot more accountability when you're there, even if you're not paying attention at least, or if you're, you know, got a good buzz on, at least you're there in the classroom and you're. You know, you can be ticked off with the attendance. Yep. There's definitely okay. that part. I tried to do a online math course right after high school, and I literally never did it. I got textbooks. I never did it. I didn't do anything because it was online. I felt no obligation because I yep. didn't have to go in. So I can't do them. I People can do them, but it doesn't work for me. But it's a great alternative to what is preferred, I would say. Yeah, I the Tony Robbins had a free online class this weekend. It was five days long. I made seventeen minutes before I got distracted. I mean, I can watch the replay, and I will. But that being said, a teacher in Kansas wanted to lighten up the mood during a Zoom class, and her prank had students cracking up. Emma Emma Ginder, a third grade teacher in Topeka, played a fart sound during an online class. I mean, it's third grade. Oops. <laughs> That sounds funny when you do it that way. That sounded real. <laughs> was that your chair? That, real. that was a heavy one. <laughs> no, I have to make a small that was audio like a adjustment. Gets, uh, hardwood floor hey. kind of fart there. Jeez. <laughs> hardwood floor. <laughs> uh, oh, that's a, that's the voice of experience right there. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Feels good to laugh. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, she played that sound. As she tried to stop her own laughter, Ginder's students all began laughing uncontrollably. Here's the clip. Most of us are here, so if you want to pull out your journeys book. (laughs) What was that? What was that? I think she farted. just warm my heart <laughs> and it, they just it just took forever for them to stop laughing too that one kid oh. lost it like me when i hear a fart joke uh the quote from the post from the teacher says some days you just have to play a good toot sound during a class to lighten the mood 
She posted that on Facebook. It's way too good not to share. Also, I apologize for having the maturity of an eight-year-old boy, which is more like a 13-year-old boy. Thank you. I would like to think anyway. Wow. Or 24. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm guilty of it. Or 52. Or Yeah. 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 Oh, heck, why not? See? All right. Um, can we get through this one super quick? It's a really short clip, so I think we can. Are you okay with push-ups? Well, they work it out, sure. The Indonesian island of Bali may have found the perfect way to get people to wear masks, a fine, or the most annoying workout routine possible. Breathe. Uh, work uh, your core. Uh, Come on. Uh, how many is that? Not counting the last one. 25. Count the last one. Okay. 25 and one girl push-up. Oh, new record. Oh. Okay. Oh, what did you do today? I uh, made a sale. Oh, yeah. Sitting on your big fat butt. <laughs> According to, in, to Inside Hook, anyone not wearing a mask in public in Bali is either subject to a $7 fine, or if they can't pay, they have to do 50 push-ups. That push-up number is reduced to 15 for people wearing the mask improperly. How great would that be to be in the mall and see somebody walking around with a mask below their nose and be like, 15 push-ups, get on a it. cop just staring over them? That's brilliant. I think it would work. I think it would work. Officials say there's up to 90% of people who are caught not following Bali's mandatory mask law are foreign tourists. Get down and give me 50. According to reports, more than 70 people have received the mask fine in Bali. 30 have been subject to push-ups. If they're foreigners with the conversion rate, the $7 is probably doable. You'd be able to recognize the offenders because they all have, like, ripped abs. Jacked. Hey, walking around. Jacked up. Looking, looking like Arnold. There's actually there a video of it happening, and it's two like guys clearly from not Bali, and the cops just yelling at them, 50, do it now, and they're just standing over them. I was going to put it in. The audio is horrible, but it is a, it is a sight to be seen, let me tell you that much. It's the Shift Podcast. We hear over and over again about RNA and new vaccines, and why can't this stuff be made in Canada, and how come relying on the European Pfizer and we can't get the Pfizer out of Kalamazoo and then Doug Ford is talking about his yin yang and oh man everything has been so incredibly strange around vaccines and solutions and it turns out we do have solutions it turns out we do have Canadians that are working on this and I think it's really important that we share some of that storyline because it's Pretty close to home. Brad Sorensen joins me. He's the founder of Providence Therapeutics. Hey, Brad. Hey, how are you doing there? Uh, good. Thank you very much. You um, you guys are, are in this pool of vaccine candidates and getting pretty darn close, too. Um, I really want to know how much sleep you get. But before we do that, let's let's talk about Providence Therapeutics. Where are you and what do you guys do? Uh, yeah, not a lot of sleep recently, uh, Shane, but where are we at right now? We are, we're a clinical company. We're working on our phase one, um, trial that should be done in a couple months. And if everything goes smooth, we'll start phase two, phase three in May, and we'll be done all of the whole clinical aspect by the end of the year. 
it's remarkable. Um, are you surprised at how fast this has worked out inside your company and for everybody else? Um, the answer is yes and no. I know it's, it's sounds trite, but our, our company was originally set up to do cancer vaccines. And so we have to get patient tumor material, uh, sequence that design a vaccine, uh, make the vaccine, test the vaccine, and then get it back to the patient in under eight weeks oh, wow. uh, in order for it to work for cancer. And, and we're dealing with really deadly cancers, ovarian cancer, brain cancer, triple negative breast cancer, that type of thing. So, so as a company, that's what we've been doing for years. Like we, we can make really good vaccines and we can do them really fast. So that, that doesn't surprise me. In fact, this is slower than what we normally do. Yeah. Uh, but given um, given the fact that we that we can do this, um, what surprises me is that it takes so long to to sort of get that communication through to the to the people that need to know and understand what can be done in Canada. And, and that, you know, yeah, COVID happened. Um, You know, other companies that do personalized cancer vaccines include Moderna and BioNTech. Those should be familiar names. Mm -hmm. We were doing the exact same thing as them. They both pivoted, received support, and were able to produce a COVID vaccine in under a year uh, and get it through through clinical trials. Um, we can do that. Um, and, and that's not boasting. It's just, that's the reality. That's the power of this technology to be able to, to be done quickly. What we failed at as a company and myself principally as the founder and CEO, I failed at was somehow communicating that capacity effectively to the Canadian government so that they understood that we could do it here and that we could help add to the, to the solution as opposed to competing for vaccines with the international community. Um, and I take responsibility for that. I'm, 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 I'm trying to correct that right now by talking to you, Shane, and by talking to all the other folks in the media, um, because I've been talking to, to bureaucrats and, and, and people in the government, and I haven't I haven't used the right words. I don't know what else to say um, to get their attention, to understand that we can do this in Canada. And so now I'm, I'm trying a different route. I'm, 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 I'm letting folks like you and anybody else who will listen uh, hear our story and hopefully that will resonate. I think one of the things that, we've seen out of all of this, not only about vaccines, but in PPE and frankly, everything is that Canadians want Canadian solutions. I get that Canadians are not hung up on only Canadian solutions or a 100% inclusive supply chain. But at the same time, they just want a Canadian solution. Can we do this here? I mean, if this were to happen again, if the infrastructure exists, at least we could scale as opposed to build from the ground up. And one thing, can I offer you something just because as a words guy who does language and communication for a job? 
Yeah, please. <laughs> uh, don't beat yourself up too bad um, <laughs> on your speaking and your your delivery of these things when one of the most important pieces of that puzzle is the listening of others. And one thing I have learned is that often the government doesn't listen. So um, this might not be a communications problem so much as a listening problem. And I just want to offer you that for peace of mind because with your work that you're doing, um, it would really suck to erode that um, because of politics and all those things. So um, I just wanted to offer you that. I think sort of man to man here. No, I appreciate that, Shane. So your history in this, first, I've got questions about the cancer stuff. Um, we'll get back to the the COVID. Your history in this is incredibly personal. And I don't understand at what point um, your background, you were just like, hey, I'm going to create personalized cancer vaccines because we can do that. I mean, that doesn't seem like something that you sketch down on a napkin at a coffee shop. So your son was affected by cancer. That's really what kicked this ball down the hill. Can you tell us that story and, and why this all matters so deeply to you? So I, I'm an entrepreneur, Shane. Uh, I like to refer to myself as I'm, I'm the least qualified CEO of a pharmaceutical company in the world. Okay. Uh, quite frankly, the, you know, I, I'm an entrepreneur. I, I'm, what I am good at is I'm, I'm good at recognizing other talented people and, uh, and, and being able to, to raise money and, and to be able to enable them. Um, I co-founded a company called Arturs Therapeutics in February of, of uh, 2013. And I actually did it with a, a lifelong friend who uh, was living down in California. He's a brilliant scientist. And that company is now trading on the, on the NASDAQ. It's, I think it's got about a $2 billion market cap. And they do RNA uh, and messenger RNA medicines as well. And so we started that company in February. And out of the gate, we had some really good success. We came up with a, a delivery technology that was just, you know, great. And so um, word is a small community. Word got around. We had this, you know, this hot tech. And we got a call um, out of the blue, literally like two months after we started the company from MD Anderson, the number one cancer research center in the entire world. And they called us up and said, hey, we heard you got something good. Would you like to collaborate? And you're like, you're a brand new company. You get a call by MD Anderson says, do you want to do something? We're like, yeah, we'll do it. Um, and it turns out that that was in a type of cancer called glioblastoma multiform or GBM, the same cancer that took Gord Downey from us. Okay. Um, and I had never heard of it. I had never, didn't have any experience with cancer. Um, but I thought it was cool. And I read about it and I realized, man, this really sucks. Like nobody lives and things haven't changed for like 25, 30 years. Um, they did, you know, they call it preclinical, you know, proof of concept work. And we saw the data the last week of August um, from MD, the MD Anderson collaboration in the last week of August of 2013. My son, my wife took my son for a routine eye exam that Friday before, you know, because she was getting ready for school. The optometrist noticed he had swelling in his optic nerve, sent us to the children's hospital. Children's hospital was busy because it was going into the long weekend. 
And so they sent us back. And we did what any stupid parents would do. We Googled swollen optic nerve. Why would, why would we need to go to a children's hospital, right? right? It turns out that there's really two things that it could have been. One is a brain tumor and two is MS. And I've had four members of my family, like, you know, cousins and aunts and uncles die of MS. And it's really aggressive in my family. And I was shattered. I was like, oh, you're kidding me. Um, it was my son's birthday that following Monday, the, the holiday Monday. And we were going to go in for the MRI on Tuesday. And I said to him, what do you want to do? He says, well, let's go climb a mountain. So we went and we hiked in the high ridge in uh, Kananaskis in Alberta. And I'm sitting there on the top of the mountain, beautiful day. And I'm just staring at my son. And all I can think of is how many more of these am I going to be able to do? Because I'm expecting we're going to get a diagnosis of MS. Well, we go in, we get the MRI and the doctor said, you know, they're all serious. We found something and it's not good. And we're like, okay. And then they turn the screen and they show us the image. And I'm not a doctor, okay? But I can tell when there's, a, when there's something inside my son's head that is the size of an orange, oh I don't need to be a doctor to see it. And I'm just sitting there going, how? We were just on a mountain. How can that possibly be in my son's head? He had a massive tumor. And he was in surgery that week, Friday. He had two surgeries. They removed the tumor. They thought, well, there's, he's so high functioning, you know, the tumor's so large, it's, it's, it's got to be a low-grade tumor that grew slowly, slowly over a long time. Well, no. It turned out to be stage four GBM, the exact same cancer that I had just seen data on of a company I co-founded that had nothing to do with cancer in the first place. I, I don't know how to describe that. We got a diagnosis less than a year. Um, you know, my son, and that's totally another story, but my son is a freaking hero. And I don't know why we were blessed that he's still with us. I'm grateful for it. There's so many good people that don't get that blessing. But I want to make a difference. And so, uh, I mean, ultimately, the, you know, as, as sometimes it happens, that the, the program that was being looked at by MD Anderson, it wasn't viable. You know, it looked kind of interesting at the beginning, but for other reasons, it didn't work. But I, it, it got my appetite wet that says, I want to do something. And so I went out and I found talented people like Eric Markison, Natalia martin Rosco, Pam Ohashi, Jared Davis, and I pulled these people together with my passion and I started the company and we started doing personalized cancer vaccines and I raised money to do it. And that's where we were at. We were, what we were supposed to be doing in 2020 was launching our phase one trial for, for ovarian cancer patients. 
with personalized cancer vaccines. That's what we were supposed to be doing. There's so many people in this world right now that are supposed to be doing different things than what they're doing right now because of a stupid pandemic. I want to get back to what I want to do. Um, and so we're doing what we can to help solve the pandemic. But, so no, it wasn't surprising for me that we can do it fast. But, and it's not surprising to me that, because that's why I called the company Providence. Like stuff happens. And you sometimes you just got to seize whatever opportunity you can and do with what you can with it. I like to say that, when somebody hears that you've got cancer, you want two things are important to you. You want the medicine to work and, and you want, you need your faith. You need family, whatever it might be. I don't, it doesn't matter what you believe, believe in something. And it's the intersection of that belief and science that I call providence. So I've got amazing scientists behind me. And I believe that we can help Canada. And so even though I've, you know, I've got detractors and people like, oh, no, you can't, the big guys are doing it, et cetera, et cetera. You know what? We'll see. Because there's something that can be done and it can be done differently. And that's what we're trying to achieve. Our conversation with Providence Therapeutics founder and CEO, Brad Sorensen. Before we went into the break, he had shared the story of his son and how they got into the development of custom vaccines for cancer treatments and shared all of that. When you look back at all of this, Brad, the story of the mountain, being on the mountain with your son, what brought you guys to this point of development? And here you are today. Do you ever wonder if you've been brought to this place quite perfectly? I believe in Providence, Shane. I do. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not out here trying to preach anything to anybody, but you know, and, and I and I don't know why. I, I'm 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 a I'm just a a regular guy. Like you know, I've got I got tons of problems. <laughs> you know, the uh, you know people ask you know what's it like doing this. I said you know what it feels pretty good because you know I got two teenage daughters and. And right now I'm pretty popular and, you know, and I, you know, when I'm going through hard stuff, you know, trying to deal with governments or regulators and all this other things and problems come up, you know, I think, well, Hey, my kids are proud of me and, you know, I'll keep pushing. Mm -hmm. So what happened with Adam? So Adam, he was offered standard of care and he would have died. Um, I, I looked up every single possible clinical trial for, for glioblastoma multiform um, only to find out that none of them included pediatrics. Uh, I shouldn't say none. There were literally entire, all of North America, there was two clinical trials that would enroll my son. One was out of Wisconsin and one was out of Florida. Um, but neither of them would enroll him until he was declared palliative. Huh. Um, and so I had no options. And it was frustrating. You know, here, here I am, you know, supposedly a co-founder of this pharmaceutical company. And, you know, we had this 
collaboration with MD Anderson, you think, well, maybe I could pull straight. You can't. It's just, it's not there. And I remember being really frustrated. And I, you know, I'm not ashamed to say it. I, I got down on my knees and I prayed. And I, you know, and I was, I was complaining. I was ticked off and I was venting. And then suddenly I had this thought that penetrated into my mind that said, stop focusing on what you can't do and focus on what you can. And so I said, I laughed. I laughed out loud. I'm like, really, what can I do? So I got up and I'm a type of person that makes lists. So I got a piece of paper and I wrote at the top of it, what can I do? First thing I wrote is I can love my son and I can make him comfortable as he goes through this. The second thing I wrote down was um, I can keep him active. He was, you know, he was, he was a competitive swimmer and he did a bunch of other stuff like that. And I can keep him active as much as I possibly can and keep him healthy and strong. Then that got me thinking about that kind of part of life. And so I said, and I can, I can make sure he eats better food. Okay. In my family, we've had, we, diet's never been anything. Like it's just, it's, it's not even something we've ever considered. But I said, I can get him better food. So I, I actually stopped there. I set the pencil down. I opened up clinicaltrials.gov and I started researching diets and cancer. And I came across a study out of Arizona by Dr. Adrian Sheck that talked about a ketogenic diet for brain cancer, GBM. And the mouse model that she was using, she did her studies in, was the exact same one that I just saw MD Anderson use. And she got better data. And I'm like, well, I can't get the drug, but I can get by go to the grocery store and buy food. And so I started my son on an extremely therapeutic version of the ketogenic diet. And when I say that, this isn't this like it, it, back then nobody had heard of it. Now everybody's tried keto. Um, my son maintained his ketones two millimoles or liter higher than his glucose levels for a year. He was drinking oil. He was eating butter. Uh, I, I, it was calorie restricted. He was 94 pounds when he was diagnosed. He dropped down to 76 or 78 pounds. Wow. The doctors called in social, they, they were threatening to call in social services because they thought I was abusing my son. Um, through that process, it turns out by providence, one of the most renowned experts in the world for ketogenic diet to treat children with epilepsy happened to be in Calgary, a fellow by the name of John Rowe. I didn't know that. And when I say literally, like, there's, there's like probably like a hundred people in the entire world that do this. And this guy's like the best. He's the one who runs all the conferences. And why is this guy in Calgary of all places? I end up meeting with John and I explained to him what I'm doing with Adam. And I explained to him the papers and why I did it and all this other stuff. And he's just staring at me. He's this little guy. He's just staring at me and he's shaking his head. And I finish. And he's like, like, where did you get all that? I said, I researched it. He's like, that's amazing. Do you even realize that I'm a co-author on that paper? Oh, no way. And I'm like, no. He's like, yeah, points it out, J. Rowe. I'm like, oh, okay. 
I'm talking to the guy who actually did the study that I based my son's protocol on. And nobody's done it before. So anyways, I work with John and we designed a individual program for, for Adam. And it's worked. And, and I'm grateful for it. One of the things I, I, I you know, I want to do is I want to be able to, to, to build that up, build that capacity. Yeah, there's only so many things you can do in life at one time. But, um, but there's a lot of obstacles, you know. But at the end of the day, would it work for, for beyond my son? I know, you know, I know a few people that have, that have done it and they beat their by, you know, out, outlived their diagnosis or, or, or done, done fairly well. I know John, he's since now been recruited down to the University of San Diego and he's down there running a, a big program and they're, they're doing a bunch of this stuff down there. Um, I tried getting them to get more support for John while he was here in Calgary and I couldn't, so we lost him. But, um, you know, that's, that's the way it is. Um, do you still count mountain days? Yeah. Every chance you get? Uh, well, if anybody's been to my website, they'll, they see the logo for Providence is, is a mountain. Because every single time I look at it, I remember that to me, that's where it all started. It was on that, it was on the top of that mountain. I, so I hear the individual, the individuality of the custom cancer stuff. Is it a big switch now in COVID to go for a blanketed result that not only would work on everybody, but um, clearly as we're seeing, it would work on multiple variations of the virus? Yeah. So 95% um, effectiveness is people don't understand how good that is. Like it, it's, it's a modern miracle what BioNTech and, and, and with Pfizer and Moderna achieved. Um, it really is exceptional. The, to be, and we're going to be in that same class, uh, Providence will be, um, to be able to, uh, to do that it is remarkable and, and to have a safe vaccine that came that fast with that level of, of effectiveness is, you know, people should understand how fortunate we are. The, with regards to the variants, the, the problem with, with the pandemic is that it's become endemic, which means that it's, it's not going away. It's, it's penetrated so much so in the world that it's going to be with us for a very, very long time. And it's an, at that point in time, it becomes a math problem. If you've got hundreds of millions or billions of people that have an infection and within each of those persons, you've got hundreds of thousands or millions of, of divisions of that, of that virus, you, you get into some pretty obscene numbers. And each time there's a division, there's a chance for a variant to occur. And so that's why we're seeing them happen. You know, the, the London variant and the, and the South African variant, and we're going to see more variants. Um, having the ability to identify them quickly and to respond quickly and having that capacity in Canada, this isn't about just rolling out vaccines this year. 
This is about managing a real problem that's not going away for, for the next few years. And, and so that we can have a life that we all want back while it's being managed. And so, you know, Providence has already made the South African variant. We made it weeks ago. Um, you know, Moderna's made it and now, you know, they announced earlier this week that they're going to go into phase one trial. Um, the, the issue isn't the now. As hard as it is to say that, the issue is how are we going to change as a society? And countries need not just Canada. You can't have two companies making vaccines and trying to distribute it to the world. This is a, this is a public health issue. And you don't have two companies distributing public health to all of the nations of the world. We need to tech transfer and we need to enable countries to be able to make their own vaccines so that they can take care of their own citizens. And that's what Providence is focused on. So the timeline for you guys, end of the year, out of clinical within a few months, and then manufactured in Canada, you have a partner for manufacturing. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're trying to, we're trying to lead by example. We're trying to set. So what we've done is we partnered with Northern RNA, which is, they do the manufacturing and it's, it's a separate entity. Um, and Northern RNA by early 22, uh, 2022 will be able to make 200 million to 400 million doses of vaccine in a year, which is more than enough for all of Canada. You know, we can do Canada and we can help, help the rest of the world. Um, my vision for that facility is that it will be able to be there for Canadians not just for this year, not next year, but 10 years from now or whatever it might be, so that when this happens again, we'll be able to respond to it. Then I want to take that model and I want to go to other countries and say, we would like to put in, we've got Northern RNA, let's put in you know, Australian RNA. And we will tech transfer so Australians can make vaccines for Australians when they need it. And if we can do this in enough areas around the world, then if there is a variant, hopefully we can respond quickly enough to it globally so that we can stop it. You know, if this existed in the Pacific, maybe this wouldn't have got to Canada in the first bloody place. So if we can put in capacity, we can protect not and, and not just put that capacity in Canada, but roll out that capacity around the world, which, by the way, these other companies, they're not interested in doing that, guys. Not when they've got countries like Canada lining up saying, yeah, please, we're going to try and jump the queue and pay obscene dollars for vaccines. Why would they distribute? Why would they tech transfer? So 
Yeah, Shane, I'm going to come back to the beginning. I haven't done a good enough job of communicating, and I'm fixing that. I am speaking truth, and I, I don't care whether people like vaccines, don't like vaccines. I don't care whether people like masks or don't like masks, because you know what? It doesn't matter. What matters is our life has been turned upside down. And it's going to stay that way until we start thinking more strategically. And I want my daughters to be able to go to their graduation. I want to be able to go see my, invite my, my father over for Christmas or my mother over for Christmas and not worry that I'm breaking the law. I want I to, to my, be able to ba- get back to working on cancer. I said to my dad, I said, um, about Christmas, I said, you know, I've never won the lottery, dad. This is not the bingo ball I want to pull to fill my card. You know, this is not the first time I win the lottery. I don't want it to be the COVID bingo. So I hear you. Um, take you back to your point. You said, what can I do? Um, stop focusing on what you can't do and focus on what you can do. Well, wow. Uh, it's a remarkable story. I hear the passion, Brad. Um, I can tell you that if communicating that story is, is what you can do, your communication is fine. The people who are listening, um, is clearly changing and that is quite remarkable. So thank you very much for sharing this story. And I invite you to continue that with us. We're happy to do it. Canadians are desperate to hear that people in Canada are doing things to crush it. And so I think you've given everybody a little bit of that today. And that's also something pretty special. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity, Shane. I really appreciate it. This is the Shift Podcast. We can take a look back and have some fun with anything on Throwback Thursday that we want, which we invite you, Shane at it's the shift.ca, to please um, let us know your favorite memory. Let us know your favorite thing from the past. An inspiration like that has brought us to this. Toys that make us. Throwback Thursday, 877-399-9898. If you had to pick one influential toy that you feel like has made you, that has been such a big part of your life, we're talking about a toy. I mean, if you're, if your toy is a monkey stuffy named Swinger. I knew you were going to do that. Oh, I right. knew it. <laughs> then yeah. that's fine. Swinger, the monkey. monkey. Ding. Ding. Uh, that's fine, man. Hey, man, you live into Swinger the Monkey. And, you know, if that's what makes you, good for you. Some of us have other toys, and we thought we would take a little step backwards into the toys that made us on Throwback Thursday. 877-399-9898. You want to tell a story, call it. You want to type a story, text it. How about, Ryan, we take a little look back at one each. What do you say? Yeah, let's do it. Absolutely. Are you going to pick something different than Swinger the Monkey or? Yes. Yes, I'm. Yes, I'm going to pick something other than my childhood stuffed animal that you pointed out has a potentially innuendo-ish name. So now I can't look at him ever the same again. Thanks for that. Ish. Did you ask your mom about it? 
nope. I feel like if I have that conversation with her, it's almost like I can officially never look at the monkey again. But it would also yeah. be funny if she also never realized it. So, yeah. or she's just lying to me, but I don't think she will ever do that. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I forgot about that monkey. Your dad and I were swingers once. Yeah. Ah, oh, mom. Thousands wow. of years of therapy. <laughs> yep. I'm going into it now. <laughs> All right. How about uh, Sir Shreds a lot? Maddie, you want to get started with your favorite toy? Yeah. Um, so, it, you know, in the preparation of the day, Ryan kept texting me, hey, what's your favorite toy? Hey, what is it? Hey, what year it is? I'm just joking. It wasn't a total hassle. Um, uh, so anyway, uh, it's it's far back. Not that I'm that old, but it's far back enough that I can barely kind of remember but um, one thing that always uh, just always sticks out to me is that I had this little red keyboard. Um, so, so like a, you know, like a piano keyboard. I don't mm-hmm. know what the name, like the name of it or anything like that. I can't even remember it working either. Like I just, but what I would do is I would watch much music with my mom and, um, and I would always see Elton John on on the TV, like playing piano, like he's always playing piano, right? And e- excellently so. Um, and so I would, you know, I would I would take this keyboard and I would put on these sunglasses and like w- this like weird little jacket. I don't I don't know. I, I, I'm just picturing the photograph that I I remember from this. I this well, isn't like, that funny? Yeah. yeah. So I've I've got this like this jacket, this these giant sunglasses, and I'm just like you know, pretending to be Elton John. I think I was maybe four or five, you know, something like that. But um but it's it's my huge sort of vivid memory and uh you know I'm just sitting there at the piano just And I think it's gonna be a long, long time. Touchdown brings me round again to find I can picture it. Just just really wanting to be the rocket man, you know? And uh yeah, so that's that that one just always takes me back. Like mm. I was really into action figures and things like that, but that was the one thing that I really uh that really sticks out to me in terms of like toys. It kind of makes sense though, right? When you think about it, like Batty got his like star-shaped sunglasses on, playing the piano. Yeah, and like I always felt that, you know, maybe I was always destined to rock, but I was definitely encouraged by my parents, you know, and, you know, I was always hanging out with my mom watching much music. And I feel like I remember like 91, 92, there was the Freddie Mercury tribute concert, which, which Elton also played at. So I may have seen him there as well. So like, I feel like there's some influence there as well. I think it's really neat that you brought up the, I remember the picture of it and the, the, the brain part of that. Cause I love the brain, right? And the brain part of us not really remembering the thing, but remembering the picture of the thing, right? The We don't necessarily remember the moment, but we remember the emotion around the photo that we've all seen of the moment. That's interesting to me. See, that's cool stuff right there. Yeah. And, and like there is an actual photograph of me like, like at the keyboard. So that's, that's what I'm referring to in the picture of, in, in the terms, both of the mental picture, but there's an actual photograph of it too. I am. Um, I do imagine it to be a red leather jacket, a la Michael Jackson, mid to early eighties. Mm. I think the jacket was red, actually. Gorilla. <laughs> yeah. 
877-399-9898. What is your toy that made you uh, unnamed text? Barbies. You can be anything you want. It's true. Barbie's so huge. Mm-hmm. And it's still huge today. Um, Dwayne says, I'd say one toy that would mean the most to me would be Matchbox cars. Spent hours playing with them back in the day. Absolutely. Do you remember when they came out, the crashing ones? You guys might not remember that. It was early oh, 80s. Oh, oh. Well, I had would... like Hot Wheels that you would run into a wall and they, yeah, would, just and they would explode crash. and it was the best. Well, they had little bumpers and the bumpers would flip around to be crunched in and the doors, you could smash them together, smash up derby style. That was cool. Hmm. All right. So um, Matt was uh, making music uh, with his new band, uh, the MacArthur's and his mom. <laughs> so... Uh, believe it or not, this is an intro for an episode of Much Music at the era when Matt was rocking out with the band MacArthur. Toast, Skid Row, plus Motorhead, Hanoi Rocks, and Rush. Welcome to the Power Hour. We've got our very own show, and we are Skid Row. Yeah. So what? What are we going to talk about? Well, first, I guess we should talk about touring England with Motley Crue, uh, which was a fun thing. So we toured England with Motley Crue in October. And then Europe. Was thing, which was a fun thing. And then we played uh, a headlining show uh, at the Hammersmith Odeon, which we sold out in seven days, which was kind of a record, but who cares? Well, um, we don't want to talk about that. No. And at the end of the night, it was a fabulous thing. Who did we jam with? Let me stand up. Be quiet. What do you think this is, the holiday? <laughs> Steve Harris. Steve yeah. Harris and Nico oh, yeah. McDrummer. <laughs> Nico McDrummer and Steve Harris. <laughs> From Iron Maiden. <laughs> and then... Uh, Thanks for clarifying that. Good Canadian kid, that's Sebastian Bach. <laughs> I think that that's, that's, that's it. That's the influence right there. That's the photo. Yeah. Wow. Right? That's, yeah, you got Skid Row in there. You got Motorhead, Hanoi Rocks. That's awesome, man. Mm-hmm. Thank you for. I was so that. happy when I found a rock and roll much music because that was it right there. I was like, I found Matt in 1990 right here. It's perfect. <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you for finding that. Much music has such a heavy hand and so much in Canada when they brought that channel out. It was so good and for so long. Not only that, I mean, you remember going downtown Toronto to go to the Speaker's Corner booth, man. You could end up on TV. And they would just do their their jock pieces from right there on the sidewalk. It was pretty awesome. Uh, Pretty awesome stuff. Here on Throwback Thursday, we're taking a little bit different approach. Toys that defined us. Um, I'm going to take us back to 1984. It was the year that Optimus Prime and the Autobots first hit Saturday morning cartoons in Canada. It was also the year I was born. Separately from Hasbro. <laughs> Amazing. Um, yeah, 10 out of 10. Okay. Uh, to the texter that sent in this text way earlier in the show, I hope you're still listening. I did want to read it out. Um, it said, when you refer to people on the text line, 
some people you call Trucker Dan and Trucker Kevin. Why do you do that? Um, we do that because they ask us to. <laughs> They've named themselves Trucker Kevin, Trucker Dan, and so on, Trucker Brian. So that's why we do that. That's what I loved about Optimus Prime. Optimus Prime gave me the truck, I had the rig, and I had the trailer. And I could drive it around, had soft rubber wheels, could drive it around, hook it up, unhook it, because you could set up the trailer, and the trailer was the command center. And then Optimus Prime would turn into the robot guy or back into the rig again. And we had this, when I lived in Port Alberni at the time on Vancouver Island, we had a pretty typical house for the for the time where you walked in, the door was right in the center, and the stairs were right there. And at the top of the stairs, our handrail, uh, an iron handrail, had uh, kind of like a pitchfork attachment down to the floor. And it happened to be the perfect imaginary garage door size for my rig of Optimus Prime. So I used to drive in there and park them, unhook uh-huh. it, drive away. I'd be sitting on the stairs over and over and over again, and that was where I played with my Optimus Prime. That was like the toy, one I remember the most. I absolutely loved it. So the overall story for the Transformers um, was Marvel Editor-in-Chief Jim Shooter and Dennis O'Neill created all of it, and Editor Bob Budiansky was brought in to create the names and profiles for all the characters. When the toy line was released, it was supported by the Marvel Comics series, animated television series, a wide array of merchandising ties-ins, too. In 1986, feature filmers released, generating $5.7 million in the States, which today seems like, well, that's like a good weekend on Shopify. But really, um, that was a lot. Mernie is north of Calgary. Where north are you, Mernie? Uh, Three Hills. Oh, Three Hills. Oh, yeah, eh? I used to live in car yeah. stairs there. Yeah, middle of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> What's going on for your toys that made you, Mernie? Uh, actually, it was uh, a set of Hot Wheels. I always played with the dinky cars when I was younger. I'm a twin, and my brother was always into the sports cars and the big trucks and stuff, and, and I liked my campers and things. But one particular um, silver and blue bus was one of my favorites. And it was just a, a like an old '70s style tour bus, obviously from back then. But uh, always carried it in my pocket. I, I enjoyed just pretending I was a bus driver. I guess when I was little, never really thought much of it uh, because, well, anyway, just later I realized as an adult I'm a tour bus driver. And I remember one day no. driving my tour bus through the Rocky Mountains, going. Oh my gosh, when I was a kid, I used to play with these things, and it just kind of dawned on me how that passion just kind of went into what I do now. I thought that was so amazing. Crazy, Came full circle. Mernie, thank you for the call. Have yourself a fantastic morning in Three Hills. And you guys as well. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Uh, Mernie, right there, north of Calgary in Three Hills. Uh, your text messages, your calls here on the shift. What are the toys that made you? Um, yeah, like this is remarkable. I love, we have so many here to try to get through. So let's get into Ryan's toys that made him. A lot of people thought Lego, but that's too easy. I've talked about Lego so many times. You think I'm going to do it like that? You already know that Lego defines who I am and my childhood, but there is another toy, another toy that is responsible for so much of the things I love in life. And uh, it is it is a toy. Don't fight me on this. The Nintendo GameCube. The Nintendo GameCube is the best video game console ever made. 
The games were incredible. It was portable and easy to take wherever you wanted. The controller was super comfortable. You could play any type of game on it. And it was the first video game console that really stuck with me. In fact, when I got my GameCube, it was Christmas morning, and my parents were recording my reaction when I opened it. And my reaction was so insane that we submitted it to America's Funniest Home Videos because of the amount I screamed and uh, immediately <laughs> ran downstairs, hooked it up to this tiny, tiny TV, and I played a game right away. The first game I ever played was Super Smash Bros. Melee. That's not a fight. Over 20 unexpected characters in one big brawl. Now that's a fight. Super Smash Bros. Melee. And I was only like 10. So thanks, mom. Uh, now, the funny thing is that I think the Japanese commercial, this is just a short clip of it, is way cooler than the American one. Nintendo All-Star ga GameCube de Dailanto. Atarashi Iwasa. Exactly. Yes. I love it. Melee is a game that I have played. I have put hundreds of hours into that game. And uh, you, I, I hosted an esports tournament in Calgary a few years ago. And the main event like, was supposed to be all these other games, but everybody just piled into the Super Smash Bros. tournament because people still play this game competitively 20 years later. It's insane. But uh, the GameCube, I played the GameCube from when I was 10 years old all the way up until I was 15. That was my console until I got a PS3. So it is it is something that I just I still have it. And I'm moving out tomorrow and I'm taking the GameCube with me. It is it's never leaving my side. It still works just fine. He's taking the GameCube and the monkey with him. And the monkey. Yes, I'm taking my GameCube yes. and my monkey and I'm leaving. Yep. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.